loss of agency shows up all the time. It also means going to a doctor and unthinkingly and without investigation, accepting their point of view on your condition. I didn't say don't listen to it. For God's sakes, listen to it. But don't give up your agency. This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the show that explores how not okay we are and why that is okay to talk about. I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on It's Okay That You're Not Okay, renowned speaker and best-selling author Dr. Gabor Mate joins me to talk about the long-term costs of denying grief or any emotion and why elephants might just be better than humans. <laughs> Settle in, everybody. This fascinating conversation with one of the world's leading experts on trauma and addiction and stress coming right up after this first break. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous <laughs> of your generation yeah. that didn't have to deal with Instagram and that. Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. We create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, two quick notes. One, this episode is an encore performance. I am on break working on a giant new project, so we're releasing a mix of our favorite episodes from the first three seasons of the show. Some of these conversations you might have missed in their original seasons, and some shows just truly deserve multiple listens so that you capture all of the goodness. Second note, While we cover a lot of emotional relational territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Take what you learn here, take your thoughts and your reflections out into your world and talk about it. Hey friends, I'm so excited to share this episode with you. It's such a great opening to season three and all of the amazing conversations that are to come. Here's why it's our starting point. In his latest book, The Myth of Normal, Dr. Gabor Mate says that being shamed or pressured into pretending things don't hurt comes with a long-term cost, both personally and collectively. He says, quote, so much heartbreak, addiction, disease, violence, and suffering spools out from the endless daily act of denying that what hurts doesn't hurt. So you can see why I love his work. This is the same stuff that I've been writing about and speaking about for over a decade. And it turns out that pretending things are okay when they are not is doing far more harm than good. Dr. Gabor Mate is a renowned speaker, expert in trauma, stress, addiction, and child development. And he's the New York Times bestselling author of the new book, The Myth of Normal plus the award-winning In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts and like a million other books, all of which will be linked in the show notes. And we cover a lot of territory in this episode. And even though I had a meticulously crafted outline for us to follow, well, for me to follow, we didn't follow any of it. (laughs) Instead, we talked about inherited grief, what happens when we deny our emotions and how those emotions find other ways to speak in our personal lives, in our communities. We talked about the differences between humans and other species with a special shout out to elephants and in a fascinating conversation about the fetishization of resilience. That's a hard thing to say. The fetishization of resilience. We learn how politics and politicians are influenced by grief. It's this like macro, micro, inner world, outer world conversation that threads a lot of powerful things together. Now, there are two things that you'll hear us mention that might need a little bit of a backstory. So one, you'll hear Gabor reference the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's basically the catalog of mental health conditions or disorders used by the mental health industry to define and diagnose mental health conditions. If you want to hear more about the DSM and my thoughts about it, check out the episode on prolonged grief disorder in the podcast archives, and we'll link it in the show notes too. The second thing you'll hear Gabor mention is his upcoming interview with Prince Harry. That's right. Right after Gabor and I finished our conversation, he was heading directly into a call with Prince Harry to discuss his mother's death and all the ways that his grief has evolved and changed over time. So 
you know, no big deal, just Gabor and Prince Harry chatting about grief. But first, we had our conversation. There are so many gems here, friends. I can't wait to hear what you carry with you from this conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate. Thanks for having me. I, I'll tell you very frankly, we've had your book in our house for a while. My wife really loves it. Her mother died uh, a few years ago. I know of your work, but I've been too busy to read the book itself. But my wife really talks up your, your book very highly. Oh, thank you. Thank her for me. I yeah, appreciate I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I th- I feel like, you know, reading through a lot of your work, getting ready for our conversation, we have a lot of overlaps in the ways that we come to the world and the ways that we think about not just grief, but inherited emotional styles and the impact that that's had on the world. Sure. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your book, but your most recent book, but not yet, because where I where I'd actually really like to start is a little bit earlier sure, in yeah. your timeline, if that's OK with you. I want to follow a, a thread from Scattered Minds. So in Scattered Minds, you were writing about your family's experience of the Holocaust. Yeah. And you wrote. As a Jewish infant under Nazi occupation, I was raised by a mother who was grief-stricken at the death of her parents at Auschwitz. My mother was anxiety-ridden because she didn't know if her husband was dead or alive, and we were under threat of deportation and violence ourselves. Now, you've written about that family experience from a lot of different perspectives, attention deficit disorder, behavioral coping skills, and we were just talking about Prince Harry and the inheritance of grief well before his mom died. So what strikes me as a thread running through so much of your collected works is both lived and inherited grief. Yes, and how it's processed or isn't. Yeah. There's a great uh, neuroscientist who I quote in a couple of my books, no longer alive, um, talk about grief. Uh, he died of cancer a few years ago. His name was Yak, J-A-A-K, Panksep, P-N-K-S-E-P-P. And he described the human emotional system as being very similar to the emotional system of other mammals with whom we share certain brain circuits for play, for example, or for caring, or for anger, and also for grief. Grief isn't some kind of an mm, arbitrary response. It's actually wired into our brains. There's a reason for it. And, and and the reason is loss is a part of life. So that even before the big losses of somebody dying, a neighbor or child might not want to play with you when you're four years old. Your dog may die. Grandpa may not be available on a, on a Sunday to be with you. Mm. And you have to be able to process that loss. It's many of the dysfunctions that I've experienced or witnessed in my patients is really our inability or our lack of support to process grief and to come to terms with the loss. Yeah, it's that lack of support and lack of acknowledgement. That's right. So that's why grief is such a sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken theme through my work, because I deal with physical illness or what we call mental illness or addictions or all kinds of coping mechanisms, dysfunctions. There's always an unprocessed grief underneath it. If I could come to terms with the loss, I wouldn't have to keep running away from the grief that I don't want to feel. Mm. I think that some people can interpret what you're talking about there as like acceptance, right? If I can just accept what happened to me, then it wouldn't bother me. But that's not what you're saying. No, acceptance can be rather superficial. I can say I accept something and intellectually I might, but that doesn't mean I've emotionally worked it through. That doesn't mean that I really grieved it. 
there's a friend of mine, a psychologist, very astute man, uh, with whom I wrote a book really based on his work. It's called Hold On to Your Kids, and it's it's a parenting book. Gordon Newfeld is his name. And Gordon said to me once, we shall be saved in an ocean of tears. Mm. This is when we actually work through the loss and we grieve it and cry about it, not because we accept it intellectually, but actually feel the pain of it and allow ourselves to feel the pain of it and really cry about it. That's when the healing actually happens. Yeah, really being seen in it. And that's that's one of my favorite themes in all of your work is that it's not about we do these things so that nothing bugs us anymore or, you know, this this really transactional emotional formula. Not that nothing bugs us anymore, that we can handle it when it bugs us. Mm. We can handle it functionally rather than escaping, denying, or acting it out. Mm. There's a something that you wrote where you said, we have the circuitry for grief inside our brains. It needs to be allowed to do its thing. Yeah. Well, that's what Yak Pankstep was talking about. Mm. So we have these circuits in our brain. One of the essential developmental needs of children, as I point out in my book, The Myth of Normal, is the capacity to experience all their emotions. Not the capacity, they have the capacity, the freedom to experience all their emotions and have those emotions validated and heard, listened, accepted by the environment, which is to say the nurturing environment, the parents and the other adults in their lives. And that includes grief. We are endowed with these uh, emotional circuitry for love, for example, but that doesn't mean we're going to feel love all the time or even be able to feel it at all in the case of some people because like all instincts or all evolutionary determined emotional dynamics, they need the right environment for their full unfoldment and development. So just because our brains are wired for it, it doesn't mean we'll experience it in a healthy way. That depends on the kind of receiving and holding that we experience in our formative years. So it being there as a potential, as a, as, a, as, a, as a brain circuit, you know, to give you a, maybe a trivial example, a bird instinctually is um, programmed to fly, but unless they're given the latitude to do so, they won't. Mm. You know, if, if you kept the baby bird in a cage and, don't, and they never see adult birds flying, that bird won't fly. Right. That instinct needs the environment to, to evoke it, and the same with grief, actually. Yeah, we need to see examples to live into. We need to see the examples, but even deeper than that, we have to be able to experience it and have that experience validated and accepted. Yeah. It's tricky, right? Because we've got such a grief illiterate and emotionally illiterate culture going back hundreds of years. So where do we start to find that validation that we need for ourselves and offer that validation to our kids, to our friends, to our community? Like if we don't have that pattern to emulate, like where do we start with that? Well, like with so many other things that we've become alienated from, we have to understand and appreciate and come to terms with what we've lost. Now, you talk about grieving, there's grieving traditions all over the world. I mean, there's the uh, Irish keening, you know, there's the Mexican Day of the Dead, where they actually go have picnics by the graveside of the, of, the, of, the, of the dead ones. There's the Jewish Shiva, where people gather and tell jokes and drink coffee, you know. Well, and also talk respectfully and appreciatively about the deceased. So we haven't entirely lost touch with these traditions, but they've become more and more the exception. 
because we've been so future oriented, become so future oriented that it's all about what we can get from the future. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of those traditions have been sort of consumed by the transactional get over it thing. Like once yeah. you've finished Shiva, you shouldn't be sad anymore. If you understand that death is part of life, then you shouldn't still be sad that your child died six months later. You know, like there's, if we get the rituals of end of life correct, then grief shouldn't be something that you still experience. And I just feel like we've done such a disservice to some beautiful traditions by making them an end point instead of a beginning. Well, the traditions aren't meant to obviate or put an end to grief. They're meant to um, ritualize it and uh, validate it and, and, and to provide some support for the for the grieving ones. But that doesn't mean it's over. I don't know any parent who's ever lost a child who's never going to be sad about it. How is that even possible? Mm -hmm. I mean, not to trivialize it, but I used to have this beautiful Malamute dog who died. God really blew that one. When when, when, when they when, when they made um, the life of dogs so much shorter than life of human beings, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I still grieve over that of that beautiful Malamute, you know, and that was decades ago. Not that I'm going and feeling sad about it all the time, but when I look at his photograph or think about it, and there's a poignant grief-like pang in my heart, you know? So that doesn't mean I go around depressed around about it, but it's there. Why shouldn't it be there? Right. Why shouldn't it be there? And I, I think that that is the, the part that we're missing so much is that the normalcy of a poignant connection that you carry with you, right? I mean, the normalcy of lifelong connection to those we love. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that orientation to the human condition is normal, that yeah. there is nothing wrong with our ways of feeling in this world. Well, you've probably seen uh, <clears throat> the latest... Um emendations to the DSM, the mm -hmm. uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Now they got some pathology related to grief. Mm -hmm. Boy, have I had thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody once wrote a parody of the DSM and they said that in the final analysis, every human activity except the practice of psychiatry is pathological. Absolutely. Right. I mean, we've we've already we've already moved in that direction. And I can look at I can look at the history of the DSM and take a little bit of hope in that, like homosexuality is no longer considered a pathological condition like yay us. But sticking prolonged grief disorder in there, you know, there's there's just yeah. so much like, oh, we need it so that we can get care covered under this corrupt system like that actually doesn't work either. Yeah. But this really like this demonizing and pathologizing of the the human experience which is something well, it, yeah yeah if people only uh, only understood that in this um insurance driven non-health system the dsm can be used to get coverage for treatment but it has no other value and it's a totally arbitrary value and well it has a certain value it describes things yeah it's shorthand but it but it doesn't explain anything, you know. So you referred to my book on ADHD, which is a condition I've been diagnosed with. But look how circular, tautological it is. Gabor has difficulty paying attention and has got poor impulse control. Uh, 
and doesn't like sitting still. Why is that? That's because he's got ADHD. How do we know he's got ADHD? Because he's got difficulty sitting still and difficulty paying attention and has poor impulse control. Why does he have poor impulse control? Because, you know, you can go through the whole list of psychiatric diagnosis and play the same circular game. So they describe things, and that may be helpful sometimes. They explain nothing. They say nothing about the human experience. So in calling grief a disorder, well, you've described somebody who's got long grief and maybe is more entrenched in their grief than is good for them. But to call that a disorder is to ignore the fact that maybe that person is alone and they haven't had the support. Maybe they've had this cheer up, get over it kind of mentality thrust upon them. In other words, it's not a disorder in the person. It's a relationship to the culture that they live in. So why are we diagnosing the individual with this disorder? I love that. Looking at the diagnosis specifically for prolonged grief disorder, not as a diagnosis of the individual, but as a diagnosis of the relationship to the community. Exactly. Yeah. That's amazing language for that because it, it really is a community issue, right? We know that being seen and acknowledged and supported, tangibly supported, emotionally supported, seen, witnessed inside difficult experiences is one of the things that helps somebody continue to live their life in a way that has beauty and meaning and support and, and all of the good outcomes that we want for somebody. And we know that lack of support being shamed or otherized or not supported and not validated has those quote-unquote negative outcomes of you know perseveration or or whatever unless i'm very much mistaken elephants grieve in community mm -hmm. we sh they share the grief circuit that we have yeah and no, no elephant i imagine tells another one get over it already right buck up pachyderm we got things to do like that's just not a thing that happens elephants are just the coolest coolest and most fascinating creatures and I feel like we can look to them for so many so many mirrors for the human experience. I remember reading gosh over a decade ago about elephants who had witnessed their mothers or their aunties or or female relations being killed at the hands of poachers. Yeah. Then became these like roving gangs of violent young males. And that back at the time, I believe this was in Kenya, not entirely sure, but that there was an organization basically doing trauma work with young male elephants to rehab. Like that was phenomenal. There's a professor emerita at Notre Dame University in psychology. Her name is Darcia Narvez. And uh, she's done a lot of work on indigenous peoples and, and, and uh, tribal cultures and all that we've lost and so on. But she's written a book called The Evolved Nest, mm. and it's coming out in a couple of months. And this chapter is on elephants and other mammals and how they relate emotionally to each other, and including her own grief. That book is so exciting. <clears throat> when a baby elephant is born, you know what happens? What? This is at the other end of the spectrum from grief. The parturient elephant, when she goes into labor, she's surrounded by the other female elephants. When the baby plops to the ground, they all stroke them with their with their trunks. Mm. That, that not only do they grieve communally, they also celebrate life communally. This is elephants. Mm. Elephants are rad. There's so much in there about not fixing, 
right? Like letting things be as they are. And we can look at ourselves and we can look at elephants and we can look at other mammals, other creatures and say, here's what happens when validation doesn't happen, when community doesn't happen, when there are breaches in relationship. Like this is where we get violence. This is where we get addiction. This is where we get all of these things that are social and communal illnesses, right? It's not the it's not the grief, it's not the pain, it's not the birth that's the problem, it's the rift in the relationship and the community. Well, the example I often give is let's say a 3-year-old um, is enjoying an ice cream cone and then the ice cream falls into the dust. Mm. And the kid is really upset. Now there's three ways you could handle it. You could say, "Oh, it's okay, I'll get you another one." The other is Stop whining. So what? Think of all the starving children in Asia. Mm. The third one is, ah, oh, you're really sad that your ice cream dropped to the ground. You really was enjoying it so much and now it's gone. Oh, what a drag. Come here. Let me hold you. You know? Now, two of those methods are going to create problems. The third one will help the child handle grief. Mm-hmm. So it's a question of, do we have the strength to accept the emotions of another that we can be with it without trying to either bribe it or forbid it. I love the bribing it one, right? I mean, this is, this is such like behavioral skill building here is life has celebrations and it has difficulties and everything in between. And do we have the skills and the networks to continue to meet it? And yeah. the, the bribery one, it's interesting, like, I get that as soon as you say that. And, you know, I'm like, oh, crap, I've probably done that before where I've like, oh, let's just get you another one. Or it's OK, we can do another like we can try it again. Like there's this there. Can- well, that, that, that can come in afterwards. But first, you have to accept the feeling. And yeah. I remember reading an article of yours, um, I think, in The Washington Post about your experience of the loss of your partner. And male-meaning friends were saying to you, oh, you're young and pretty, yeah, you'll find another partner. Mm-hmm. Well, what were they saying? What they were actually saying is, I find it hard to be with your grief, and I want to talk you out of it so I don't have to feel uncomfortable. Exactly. That's what they were. Absolutely. That's what they were actually saying. Mm-hmm. You, f- you found it, of course, naturally profoundly unhelpful. And uh, you seem to have had either the resilience or the support or both not to be negatively impacted by those kind of well-meant but really stupid interventions. Mm. And the same thing happens in the addiction world. You know, the, the, the codependent who's desperately trying to change the addict, what they're really saying is, I can't handle what I feel when I see you behaving in a certain way. So I'm going to try and change you so I don't have to feel so bad inside myself. So we're so often using others to try and regulate ourselves. We try and control their experience so that we don't have to feel bad ourselves. And this shows up in child rearing all the time. And certainly it shows up around grief, of course. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's that second half of the sentence, right? It's what we really mean by what we're saying. And it's just, it's it's so rude on so many levels. And it really is about like, we're trying to regulate our own discomfort. And I, I think the the trick here, and trick is maybe the wrong word, but the trick here is to slow things down and recognize your own discomfort in the face of somebody else's emotions or feelings. Yeah, to this day in my marriage, I have great difficulty with my wife's anxiety. Mm. No, no, not that she's sort of an anxiety-ridden person all the time, but when, when the anxiety shows up, I want to kind of regulate it and control it. 
No, why is that? Because as you as you quoted earlier, when I was an infant, I had a very anxious mother. And that made me feel intensely uncomfortable. Mm. So it still brings up that. Just yesterday, my wife Ray and I had a conversation, you know, around this uh, whole interview thing with Prince Harry that I'm doing this weekend. And and there's been a lot of backwash and feedback and public conversation around it. And I'm kind of used to the limelight, you know, so I can take it in my stride. My wife, for her, this has been rather overwhelming. And then and part of her reaction is, this is too much. And it's kind of an anxiety reaction. And I found myself tense and trying to control her. And why is that? Because I'm uncomfortable with her anxiety. I can't, what, what, what's the word you say? To stay with it or to have patience for it? Mm. To be able to be with it? Mm-hmm. It's a word that you use. Oh, I'm not sure. But I, one of the words I will often use is withstand or witness. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's it. I had difficulty doing that until mm-hmm. I realized that I was having difficulty doing it. And then I owned it. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, I'm noticing that I'm having difficulty. I'm the one having the difficulty here. But it's taken some work to to gain that kind of self-awareness. Yeah. And that's the work, right? Like the work is to recognize not that you or someone else is like screwing up or doing it wrong. It's that we all have conditioning and inheritances, emotional and physical and relational inheritances that have a long reach and becoming aware of them so that we know when those things are happening so that we can sort of reset our foundations in the relationship that's happening or the interaction that's happening in front of us, right? And slowing things down to say, oh, this is actually causing discomfort in me. Let me tend to that so that I can either step away or I can show up for you in the ways that you deserve and the ways that you need. But I got to take care of this in me first. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, there's a lot of teaching. Uh, I don't know if you ever had Tara Brachan, but she... She talks very much about it in the same terms. Mm-hmm. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. 
I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, before we get back to my conversation with Dr. Gabbard Mate, I want to tell you about a new way to get answers to your questions about grief. Each month, I host a live video call-in Q&A session for patrons. If you've ever wanted to know if what you're feeling is normal, come ask me. If you want to know how to have that conversation with your nosy relative who keeps butting into your business with their ideas about what your loss should look like, come join us. I'll help you create a boundary where there really needs to be a boundary. Once a month, every month, if you've ever wished you could talk to me directly and get your questions answered, this is by far the easiest way to do it. All of the information is at patreon.com backslash Megan Devine, and you can find the link in the show notes. I hope to see you there every month. All right, let's get back to my conversation with best-selling author, Dr. Gabor Mate. I think I can get so adamant about the ways we do things wrong <laughs> that it, it seems like I'm just like always like, okay, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is, you know, you have to do this better relationally and, and all of these things. And it is true that we get a lot of things wrong and it doesn't have to be so complicated to make things better, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, Tara talks about her method called RAIN, mm-hmm. R-A-I-N, which is recognize, just recognize that something is there, and then allow it to be there, and then, and I'm feeling sad right now, I'm feeling anxious right now, then investigate it, what's this all about, and then nurturing it taking care of it you know and it's really what you're talking about as well of just being with something and allowing it and uh, being curious about it yeah yeah and it's not something i love and what you what you just described is like the personal agency in there and that's something that you talk about a lot in all of your work and in your most recent book too is like the being able to find personal agency in your own healing and in your own life and in your own relationships well in my view, based on my medical experience 
in all the research that I've covered is that that loss of agency is at the source of much of what we call pathology, mm. whether physical or, or, or mental. And people have a hard time grasping this sometimes only because the medical training completely separates the mind from the body. But that that loss of agency actually shows up in physical illness. Uh, the the, the mind-body unity being so such a fact, it's all one, that our emotional lives affect our physiology. When we lose agency, the capacity to respond authentically to our life situations from a place of self-awareness and connectedness to all our emotions, including pain and grief, when we lose that capacity, we lose agency. That loss of agency has an impact on our immune systems, on our hormonal apparatus, on our, heart, our cardiovascular system, on our nervous system. And often healing, if you actually study the literature on healing, it has to do with the regaining of agency. Even the word healing comes from the word for wholeness. And so how is it that we're not whole? We're not whole because at some point, in order to survive our early environments, we had to suppress our connection to ourselves, our agency which at that time was necessary to help us negotiate our early environment. But that same loss of agency then, our giving up of ourselves, the loss of authenticity then has physiological impacts lifelong that can manifest in illness of mind and body. And the healing then, becoming whole again, is precisely the regaining of that agency. Mm. That's a main theme in my most recent book. Yeah. So what would regaining agency look like as a practice for an individual? Here's what it would look like uh, on a simple level. As I told you, I'm going to Los Angeles this week. It so happens. And you're in Los Angeles. And I arrive Wednesday evening and I call you up and I say, do you want to go for coffee? And you don't feel like it because you're tired. And because uh, you got you watch television or, you know, whatever. I got, thing, I got things to do. Yeah. You got, you got things to do, you know, feeling well, whatever. But you say, yes, because you're afraid of displeasing me. You're afraid of hurting my feelings. You're afraid of disappointing me. You're afraid I won't like it. I won't like you if you say no. So you say yes. Where does a no that wants to be said? Well, that's a loss of agency. You're not acting on behalf of yourself. You're acting on behalf of what you think will please me so that I will accept you even as you're rejecting yourself. So loss of agency shows up all the time. It also means going to a doctor and unthinkingly and without investigation, accepting their point of view on your condition. I didn't say don't listen to it. For God's sakes, listen to it. But don't give up your agency. You know, in a relationship, when I talk about in the myth of normal, the chapter on women, 80% of autoimmune disease happens to women. Now, autoimmune disease happens to happen to people who suppress their emotions, especially their healthy anger, who are always trying to please others and take care of the emotional needs of others. In other words, who are given up agency. Or who think their agency is expressed through absorbing the needs and stresses of others. Now, in this culture, which gender is programmed to do that? It's not a genetic thing. It's a cultural thing. Mm. That's why women have 80% of autoimmune disease. I love the it, phrase you use in the book as women as the shock absorbers. That's from a headline in the New York Times, yeah. which during COVID, 
looked at women and the stresses they're under and women assumed automatically that their job was to absorb the stresses and griefs and unhappiness of their children, their families, and their spouses, which was caused by COVID. And women felt guilty when they couldn't successfully alleviate the stresses of their spouses. So, so the New York Times had an article called Society, Society Shock Absorbers. I took that headline, made it into a chapter title, because that's actually at the root of so much chronic disease. That's why women have much more chronic illness than men do. I believe, I believe. Yeah. I mean, there's the, when you're describing agency, you know, the, the way that I really hear this is like, we don't lie to ourselves very well, right? So yeah. we're out of alignment with what we want for ourselves. If we, if we had the capacity or the time or the, the understanding that we need to listen for what's true for us and then claim that truth out into the world and putting yourself first, the, the care yeah. and feeding of your own being ahead yeah. of the care and feeding of other beings. And yeah. we don't lie to ourselves very well, which is why like we go back sort of back to where we started here with validation and acknowledgement, not just of grief, but of everything. Like that is the foundational element here. Did you say that we don't lie to ourselves very well? Yeah, we don't lie to ourselves very well. Mm, I don't agree. No? I think I think we lie to ourselves all too well which is why there's so much illness in this society. What we don't do it is we don't do it successfully because the body won't let us get away with it. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that's sort of what, that's what I mean. Like we lie to ourselves all the time. We're super duper practiced with it as a skill set. We're awesome at lying to ourselves, but the impact of lying to ourselves like that, that bill comes due, right? Like we don't lie to ourselves very well in the sense that that has such an impact and such a cost that it's not successful. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, how I would put it is we don't align with ourselves very well. Mm. And and we lie to ourselves in order not to align with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that exacts an, an exorbitant cost in terms of health and well-being. Yeah. Or as Bessel van der Kolk says in the title of his book on trauma, the body keeps the score. Yes. And the community keeps the score too, right? I mean, we're not just talking about individuals having issues, right? We're talking about communities and culture and you know we started out this conversation talking about like the the long reach of inherited grief and inherited violence and when i talk about politics or policy in my work i don't get backlash as often as you might think in a sort of an ugly internet world but mm -hmm. i do get some complaints like can you just stick to grief and you know my response is always like i am sticking to grief yeah i know i get the same thing you're a doctor why do you talk about politics i talk about politics because everything affects everything else that's right because, because human health is not an individual or individualized quality it's a reflection of our relationship from in utero onwards with our parents with our environment with our community and with our whole culture Nothing is separable. So if you look at so-called political factors, there was an article in the New York Times 10 days ago, as we speak, about black women giving birth. Mm -hmm. And their risk of the child dying or them dying is higher than white women, regardless of economic status. It's about the inflammatory, literally physiologically inflammatory impacts of racism. 
another study three months ago in the aftermath of racism, if you look at the person, they have higher inflammatory processes in their bodies. But put that, you know, project that on a lifelong basis. No wonder then if you look at the health of populations such as indigenous Canadians or black Americans, on every measure they come out worse. And it's got nothing to do with genetics. It has to do with politics and society and sociology and culture and history. So how can we not talk about it when it's all one? That's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah, you can't separate that stuff because policies create grief, systems create grief, and systems and policies are created by humans that are carrying deep trauma and a lack of alignment and a lack of being seen. And we can't we can't talk about the need to acknowledge and honor grief and find community and find relationship and not talk about politics, policy, and culture because they are all one cloth. Yeah, well, you know, the Buddha said it 2,500 years ago. He said, uh, look at a leaf or a raindrop. He said, look at all the conditions they're going to making a leaf or a raindrop. It's all interconnected, he said. Without the many, they cannot be the one. Without the money, they cannot be, they, they cannot be the one. And it's true. If you look at a leaf, you can look upon it as an isolated object. But is it? The leaf is a product of photosynthesis. It produces photosynthesis, which is to say the processing of light, which comes from the sun. And the leaf contains the sky, the water that fell from the sky, that then is sucked up to the, the roots and in, into the leaf. The, the leaf contains the earth, the materials. The leaf might reflect the activity of other animals and human beings. You can't talk about that individual leaf as an isolated, separate entity. It contains the whole world. The same thing is true of everything, including us as human beings. So that's why you can't separate anything from anything else. Mm. So it's not just spiritual wisdom that we're talking about here. We're talking just basic science. Right. We're talking facts. Yeah. Facts, yeah. not fluff here. Yeah. I mean, you keep your your eyes and your mind on so much pain and suffering, right? And the the systems and the containers and the interrelatedness of pain and suffering, which can be a real bummer of a world, right? When we look at how much damage has been inherited and passed on and how much damage continues to be created. I know that you're not a downer of a person, right? Like we can take things seriously and still find hope for things. I mean, I, I'm, I'm. Well, let me, let me make a few distinctions here. Okay. Lay it on me. Yeah. So first of all, there's pain and there's suffering. They're not the same thing. You can have pain without suffering. When there's suffering, there's always pain. But when there's pain, there's not always suffering. It's a question of how we relate to that pain. And um, very often, it's the denial of pain that creates the suffering. I had to be charming as a kid in order to be liked, and I'm charming all my life because I don't want to feel the pain of being rejected, and therefore I end up with the wrong people. That's going to create pain. So it's the running away from pain that creates the suffering very often. Hmm. Number one. Number two, you say, take it seriously, think seriously, and still have hope. Well, is there a contradiction somehow? There's no. It's not. It's not that. Despite taking things seriously, I have hope. It's because I take things seriously, I look at all aspects of things, so that in every difficult situation, there's also a possibility. It's not that I have hope. It's I see the genuine possibility. 
And I've seen lots of people, as you have, I know, being through tremendous pain, tremendous suffering, and find new wisdom and even new ways of being alive through dealing or, or honestly by confronting seriously that pain and that suffering so that the very possibility of healing and growth reside in the suffering. And as the Greek playwright Aeschylus wrote in one of his plays, the Agamemnon, that the way the gods created us, we have to suffer, suffer into truth. I wish it wasn't like that. But it's just all too true for a lot of us that for you, I'm sure, and for me and for many other people listening, it's when they've suffered that they've actually started to discuss or discover or, or investigate, well, what is the source of my suffering and what can I learn from this? Hmm. So that it's not one or the other, it's that the suffering itself contains the possibility of healing. Hmm. And very often it's what grabs us by the scruff of our necks to truth, you know? Hmm. Yeah. There's so many directions that I could go, but I know that we are winding up with time and you need to get on to your next thing. So we will link in the show notes to all of the places where people can find you and hear more about you and to your newest book. Anything else you want folks to know in this last minute? I think we've covered a lot. Thank you very much. And I really appreciate you hosting me. Um, there's a film people might want to watch. It's online. It's called The Wisdom of Trauma which is based on my work on trauma. Um, you can donate. The filmmakers are raising money for their next project on indigenous people around the world, but also people can't afford to. You're not, you're not obligated to donate. You can put zero, zero dollars in there as well. That's up to the individual. But that film, The Wisdom of Trauma, which you can find online, I think it sums up my work really astutely. No thanks to me, by the way. That's the, thing, that's the credit to the filmmakers, but I think it will be of interest to a lot of your listeners. Excellent. And we will find that and link to that in the show notes, everybody. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with your questions to carry with you right after this break. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... 
I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. Now, Gabor had an event to get to immediately after our conversation, that conversation with Prince Harry that I mentioned before. So one, I didn't get to explore what hope means for him as much as I would have liked, though he did talk a little bit about hope there at the end. And two, if we'd had more time, you bet that we would have thoroughly gotten into the idea that healing comes through suffering, that our learning comes through suffering. I mean, if you just took that line of his out of context, it would be easy to hear it as like you needed your suffering. You needed your suffering in order to grow. And we know it's not like that. There's something to that, though, what Gabor was talking about at the close of our conversation. Not that we need suffering or that we only learn through suffering, but that there is knowledge, self-knowledge, knowledge we need for our own healing and the healing of the world inside that suffering. With coming into a relationship with that suffering, finding ways to tell the truth about suffering, so we can uncover the pain at the root of it and listen to what that pain has to say. I mean, that's just one of many things that I'm taking from this conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate, friends. From elephants to childhood to politics to everything. Now at the end there, Gabor said something that I love. It was so fast that you might have missed it. He said, It's because I take all this seriously that I have hope. Because I take this seriously, I have hope. Now that's something I'm going to explore for myself this week. The ways that my own hope may or may not actually come from the serious attention I give to the pain of the world. That feels like interesting territory to me. How about you? What stuck with you from this conversation? Everyone's going to take something different from the show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. If you want to tell me how today's show felt for you or you have thoughts on what we covered, 
let me know. Tag me at Refuge in Grief on all the social platforms or It's Okay Pod on TikTok so I can hear how this conversation affected you. You can follow the show at Refuge in Grief on all the social platforms and It's Okay Pod on TikTok to see video clips from the show. And use the hashtag It's Okay Pod wherever, not only so that I can find what you're thinking and you're feeling from this show, but so others can find that conversation too. None of us are entirely okay, and it's time we start talking about that together. Yeah? It's okay that you're not okay. You're in good company. That's it for this week, friends. Remember to subscribe to the show, leave a review for the show. Your reviews help make the show easier to find for other people, which obviously furthers our mission of getting more people to have interesting conversations about difficult things. Also, though, your reviews are really special to me personally, and I love to read them. Want more information or support on these topics? Look, grief is everywhere. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we don't call grief. Learning how to talk about all that without cliches or platitudes or simplistic, dismissive statements, that's an important skill for everyone. Whether you're trying to support a friend going through a hard time or you work in the helping professions, and you talk about this stuff all the time. Get the help you need to have those conversations, find trainings, professional resources, and my best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, at megandevine.co. It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the podcast is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, logistical and social media support from Micah, post-production and editing by Houston Tilly, Music provided by Wave Crush, and today's background noise provided by the endless spring drone of chainsaws cleaning up after the winter rains. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.